So this shall be a chapter three, chapter three of the podcast series, but episode two. Um, something like a George Lucas-esque Star Wars um, mystery of episode four, and then we go back to episode one. You know what I mean. <laughs> but anyway, I'm your chronicler, Ryan Morano, and today's author is Elise Wilson. Is it Elise Wilson? It is Elise Wilson. Now, <laughs> Can't confirm. She is, as you know, this podcast interviews artists, but just wait till you hear this little bio, her, her credits... And this is what she just did, and I could be wrong. That's right. In the 2017 Perth Fringe World Festival, all those months, no, weeks ago. February. February. So correct me if I'm wrong. In January, she was one of the producers for the musical Fairy Bread at the Noodle Palace, Sandpaper Plain, Jackson Hughes. Please like him, or see if you can add him on Facebook. He's a wonderful gentleman, a wonderful writer and artist himself. And hopefully one day I shall interview him on this podcast series. In February, she performed and co-devised in the theatrical show Come On Down, as well for Fringe. So she produced, performed and co-devised for theatrical show Come On Down. Would you say a satire on... Game shows, yeah. Game shows, again at the Noodle Palace. And she also, again, performed and co-devised... Now, I'm not sure if the show's called The Improvement yeah. Movement. So, yeah, our section was called The Improvement Movement, and then it was part of uh, 600 Seconds at the Blue Room for Summer Nights uh, at Fringe, yeah. She's, this is amazing. <laughs> she's, well, she's done three things, produced, uh, performed, and co-devised, which basically is, yeah, writing a, and directing and doing and a lot of theatrical dog body activities to create a show. So welcome, Elise. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. You're an inspiration because you're busy. You're a very proactive artist. Is there a particular form that... Because also, she studies the Bachelor of Performing Arts performance making course at WAPA. And she's in her second year. And also, I'll quickly mention, she'll be also appearing with many of her colleagues and peers at WAPA. Um, she'll be a part of the solo stage, Moments of Being. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, sorry, the reason why I'm having a lot of, it's a, it's a, it's a basically a show, two programs of solo performances that were basically created um, by the second year students of the BPA course. And they're being mentored and guided by the wonderful Samantha Chester. In her own right, one day, she shall be, hopefully, on this podcast one day. Oh, that's the dream. (laughs) That is an absolute dream. So, Ryan, where are you getting with all this? To go back, do you have a particular occupation you want to pursue in the arts? The answer to that is not specifically one, which is why I found the BPA course appealing, is because... You, you do learn everything from devising to acting to writing and directing, all of the stage management, arts management side of the whole production. Uh, because in the past, I'd mainly focused on acting mm. and producing and recently had done a bit of directing and writing and I realised that I like all of them. <laughs> so I, I really I really do think that in terms of the future and where I'm going to go, I, I don't want to necessarily stick to, say, just being a director or just an actor. Uh, but rather, I, would, I think I would find it more appealing to see myself in lots of different roles and each each production working in a different capacity, I think, would I would find most enjoyable, probably. I like the sound of being in um, lots of different roles in lots of different shows. Mm. But would you ever consider... Well, I think we'll have to in this... How the economy is going. Yeah. Um, would you see yourself being the producer, the director, the writer, the performer of a show? Of just one show? Yeah. That would be a challenge. I think with enough experience, I... I might consider that. In a way, that could actually be beneficial because it would mean I would have control over all aspects of said hypothetical show, which means that although it would be a lot of work, it means I could 
angle everything to mesh together well. I don't have to, I, it means I wouldn't have to, to, to have a discussion with someone and have a disagreement and then have to come to a compromise. There would be no compromising because it would be just me. I wouldn't have to compromise myself because I'd know what I want and I would, um, if feasible, do whatever I, I need to. I'd see, I'd go, see, for me, I'd go mad. If you did I, everything? Yeah, because right now, how, how I'm sitting, I, I'd, be, I'd love to, um, and I'm not saying you're not, I'm, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but for me, I'd really love to work with other people, you know, not not just obviously, because a sonographer, for example, uh, a musician, a composer, obviously I'd like to work with fellow performers. And and something on that is also, like you say, working with other people does have its benefits, mm. such as I'm not the uh, most knowledgeable person about everything. And sometimes it helps to have people who who show strengths in in your weaknesses and and like you say people who are sonographers and composers i would have no idea so i I think i definitely need to at least if i was going to do a show write everything myself at the very least have a conversation with someone like that and yeah yeah. yeah, get to get to know get more knowledge in those areas that i currently have a knowledge deficit (laughs) in (laughs) Um, oh, that's a good knowledge deficit. A knowledge deficit. I love that. Yeah, I think. Yeah, and that's knowledge deficits are probably. Well, I mean, that's where everything goes wrong. Is when you have a knowledge deficit. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, if I didn't have any knowledge deficits, hmm. hypothetically, I could do everything on my own. But I definitely have knowledge deficits. Hmm. Therefore, would need people to to help me in particular areas. Uh, but in saying that. To grow, you have to challenge yourself. Yeah. So, I don't know. Maybe one day I'll I'll try and do everything myself, and I could fail massively. But uh, failure is is just um, it's on the road to learning. So. Yeah, absolutely. I think fail, and I see. Obviously, this being the Perthian Chronicles, we are going to be a bit bias and focus on the Perth art scene. Mm. But I feel like Perth does have the the somewhat safe environment to fail. To, to perform risky works. You're like in the blue at, at the Blue Room Theatre. Yes. I've definitely heard that in Melbourne and Sydney mm. if you you're you're less likely to to be able to bounce back from a failure quickly. Yeah, in comparison to Perth. I assume that's because there's more people or Sydney, yeah, that's I a don't thing. Know. I think yeah there's there's a lot of competition like as mm. I was talking to Zachary Sheridan, who appears in next week's episode podcast, um, <laughs> I, I mentioned to him, we are talking a little bit about, you know, Adelaide, uh, Adelaide Fringe Festival and like Mad March in Adelaide and where there's so much going on, not just artistically, but there's car races and, you know, what have you. Mm. And, and I think, yeah, that's the thing. There's a lot going on. See, that's why I'm a bit hesitant going to Adelaide, although I think as an artist and as we are, as, as young artists, we do need to make pilgrimages to Adelaide, Sydney, Melbourne, the big, big, big cities, and you know have a go at even bigger, more uh, commercial work. But yeah, I'm, the, I do feel there's a bit of too much noise, I think. Yeah. And see, that's what I'm worried about, see how um, Perth, the, the Fringe World Festival in Perth is going, because there's a lot, there's mm. a lot to see. And actually, personally, I was a bit annoyed that I, because I was busy with my fringe show and what have you, and I, I only managed to just see just horrible, and this is a horrible confession, I only managed to see just one, this one show. But unlike yourself, I bet you, well, you, you've obviously <laughs> done three shows, I imagine you saw like a hundred and... Yeah, I mean, I tried, I tried to see as many shows as possible, but it is hard when you're, when you're doing your own thing to, to try and find, well, firstly, to try and find the time that doesn't clash with either a rehearsal or a performance that you're in and then secondly when you're not performing you're not rehearsing I think sometimes you just want to go home and sleep but I I had to push through um on some days and try and try and yeah see as 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 many shows as possible and also not just theatre I saw some dance shows some stand-up circus just to broaden the horizons, a bit of cabaret. <laughs> um, yeah, so I tried, I tried to see some shows, but it is difficult having 
what, 700 and something? I think it was 700 and something fringe yes. shows this year. And they're all competing for the for your attention. So it was hard to, to pick and choose, I think, which which ones to go to. You do hear some horror stories, like especially with um, stand-up, there's these two... Um, sorry, I, I'm not sure if this is going off topic, but there's this two, these two um, British comedians, and they... I think they are a bit established in Britain, but they came here to Australia. I forgot their names. But what, what, basically, why I'm making reference to them is because of profit-wise. They came here into Perth, and I think they, they sold out their show. Mm -hmm. And basically, I think the show grossed $100,000. Wow. But these are well, they're both well... Um, it's just driving me mad about not um, not having their names on me. But anyway, so they grossed $100,000 and yet a lot of it was not saying that the festival took a lot of money, but their um, advertising took a big chunk out of it. Um, their producers, although these two, they did produce themselves, but their sort of um, promotional I don't know, managers did take a big chunk. And basically, to sum it all up, they came to Perth basically to do like an ad saying, we're here in Australia. And then we're going to Adelaide to do the circuit. You know, Adelaide and then Sydney, Melbourne, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Full stop. Sorry. <laughs> There's the... So you're saying they they basically came with a, a, a big budget? Yeah, so show. it's quite sad. No, it's like... Or... Um, oh, to, to make... why I wrote, Again, why I raise it up is because, yeah, artists don't make much money. Right, yeah. Yeah, I think Fringe, in particular. I think yeah, I fringe, don't think it's, I think, it's yeah. I don't think it's easy to I make th money at Fringe. Think, you do it for the love, obviously. It's a, a wonderful. I think it is a good opportunity for you to um, promote work, touring works. Yeah. Yeah, I think Fringe is a place to try something new, take risks, and do it for the sake of creating art, and not necessarily expecting to to make a profit. I think in some cases, doing a fringe show might actually be to the, the detriment of money out of the pocket, but you, you gain a lot of exposure, I imagine, mm. uh, doing fringe shows, and you get a lot of marketing uh, from, you know, the, the fringe. Package, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, in, in a way, I think it's, it can be difficult to, to, to reconcile how much money it's going to cost, but the, the benefits of performing it can be a bit of a, <laughs> a bit of a struggle <laughs> yeah do do it for the sake of the art which i think i think we did with the shows that i worked on well absolutely because they're all they're all um the people involved in those projects were obviously either just graduated they've done their tertiary, tertiary education they've done the hard yards of training and whatnot and they're the pioneering mm. youngsters pioneering the art and i think it can only get better from here yeah I just just thought in my head, sorry to put... No, it's not putting you on the spot, but <laughs> can you remember the last Fringe show that you watched? The very last the one. The very last one, can you? Oh, I think... Oh, gosh. Um, sorry about that. No, I, I, I can get... I think it probably would have been something in the Blue Room. Hmm. I think it was They've Already Won. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Yeah, I'm pretty sure... Or at least I can't remember watching anything after that. I think it was they've already won. And, I'm, and the reason why I asked that is that was there anything from that show mm -hmm. that you wanted to take back into your practice? They've already won was... Oh, no. <laughs> um, I think what I wanted to draw from they've already won is having an issue and talking about it in a way that firstly people are going to understand and respond to and being really I want to say that it was really honest mm. they basically excuse the language we're just talking about how as humans we, we fucked up yeah. and and this is the state that the world is in now and I think we sometimes have the tendency to to tiptoe around the the big issues the big questions within theater particular theater pieces that we're, we're making but they dove straight in and were just brutally honest about the state of things and can we do anything about mm. it 
I don't know. <laughs> I was thinking I should also mention, sorry to, because as you know, this is brand new for me, so I'm, I'm just learning how to drive this car. Mm-hmm. Um, so to clutch the, cluck the, oh, I don't know, cluck the, change the gear? Change, change gear? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Clutch, the, well, that's the clutch to change, I said. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I drive I, an automatic, so. <laughs> do I? <laughs> <laughs> and this is why we're struggling. <laughs> to go back, um, Elise is a part of solo stage moments of being. It's getting performed at the Enright Studio at Whopper from the 10th of May. From the 10th of May. And I was talking to Zach yesterday, next week, Monday, <laughs> Tuesday, Wednesday, that you have two programs, Program A, Program B. You're opening on Wednesday the 10th at 7.30pm, Program A that is, then Program B on Thursday at 7.30pm, then Program A again on Friday the 12th of May, 7.30pm, and then Saturday closing with Program B on Saturday the 13th of May at 7.30pm. Zach was telling me there were going to be hopefully more shows like matinee. Yes, uh, looking at the unit plan for our solo unit... It said, we haven't actually discussed this in class, but it was saying that we might be doing some matinees, I think two, one program A, one program B. And from the way that it was phrased, it sounded as if, I don't know if it's open to the public or just school students. Yeah, it said something about school students, so I don't know if if it is to the public or, or just students, but stay tuned. I'm sure there'll be information about that as it approaches. I've got to, because this is interesting, because as I get older, I really like them. I do, personally, I like a matinee performance. Do you find there's any value of putting on matinees perform, a matinee performance, or is it a bit of a distraction mm. in the afternoon? And... Yeah, oh gosh, I'm, I don't think I have a, a solid opinion for or against matinees. I'm pretty neutral. I think that, yeah, there are pros and cons. Um, cons being... I don't think you're likely to fill as much of the audience in a matinee as mm. you are in the evening. Lots of shows that I've done, the matinees have been filled with older crowds. Yes, yeah. So <laughs> that that can be interesting to perform to if you have to uh, feel the energy of the room and it's lots of old people. <laughs> Nothing against young, old no, people. No. And old people, and from my sense, are younger kids. It's a yeah. very interesting. You get the opposite spectrums of mm, life yeah you get the the, the dichotomy yeah. they're, they're very young and the very yeah. old and then and then of course there's the case that if you're performing uh, a show that requires lots of energy are you going to be able to if you have a, an evening show that same day are you going to be able to sustain that energy during the matinee and then also in the evening but generally it's pretty feasible and often once you've put in lots of money towards making a show it makes sense to to have a matinee if possible because if you've already spent money say on costume set the costume and set is going to be it's there anyway yeah it's it's already been spent yeah there's no extra cost other than say venue hire yeah then in which case from a, a monetary perspective one of the pros of having matinee could be to rake in a little bit extra money from ticket sales. And plus, I just like the idea that when I watch a Madness show, like, see, the one thing, I really wanted to watch The um, the Tempest. Mm-hmm. It was getting performed free at the studio, at the State Theatre Courtyard. But it was cancelled because of weather, because, you know, it's, 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 mm. it's performing outdoors. But I just love the idea of going to a show at the day and then fish it, and it's daylight when you leave. Yeah, yeah. That, always, that would always throw me off when I went to watch a movie. Oh, yeah. And you go in when it's light, <laughs> yeah. and then you come out and it's dark. But if you're seeing a matinee show, then you go in when it's light, and you come out and it's still light, and you have the rest of the day to, cool. to do whatever. Yeah, matinees are fun. <laughs> I'd be curious. I wonder if anyone's done, like, uh, obviously, um, historically, um, with the passion plays, you know, those those biblical plays that go on for three days, that, you know, usually popular in the United Kingdom, um, and, it, and it goes through the... Retells the struggles of um, Jesus Christ, you know, when b- before he was um, before he's crucified, mm-hmm. before he's crucified, you know, passion plays. But sorry, the reason why I mentioned passion plays was: has anyone considered doing a show in the morning? In the morning, yeah, a play in the morning. Oh, because I know, yeah, kids shows. Obviously, it's like 
before matinee time, like a, mm. yeah, before two o'clock. Yeah. Uh, I'm just curious, like a, a play, like at say ten o'clock. In the morning. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen a show advertised at, at ten a.m. And I, I wonder why that is. Yeah. Because, I mean, ten a.m. is is not a super early time in the morning. I mean, you're only two hours off being in the afternoon. Yeah. So I imagine most people would be awake and maybe this is a something to do in the future. <laughs> maybe, know, Ryan, just... you should put on a show Pioneer. at 10 a.m. 10 a.m. See, see, see what the turnout looks like. <laughs> well, because it's interesting because, you know, evening, like, um, theatre, like, if we think about classical theatre, you know, um, theatre is usually synonymous is that the right word? Synonymous with a dinner time. Mm-hmm. Or late supper. Mm-hmm, you know, yeah. in the olden days, you know, you'd go and watch a play and then you'd, you know, have late supper at like, I don't know, 11 o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. You know, back then when things used to yeah. be open very, very late. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just interesting yeah. time and food. Yeah. I feel like, yeah, the arts, you know, there's this history of art, food, food and yeah, art. Yeah, food and art. And if, if you were to put in a show at 10 a.m., then you could either go for breakfast beforehand yeah. or lunch afterwards or both. And it's sandwiched by by food. <laughs> you go, food, show, food. Maybe that's... I'm really liking this idea. Yeah, yeah. Maybe <laughs> the, the food should be part of the performance. You rock up, you get to feast on a breakfast, 10am comes along, you watch the show, and then afterwards get some, get some lunch. That'd be great. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know, I really, and especially that would be good on a, like, I can only see this, obviously, not a working day, like, on a weekend, like, a Saturday or a mm-hmm. Sunday, 10 Yeah, o'clock. definitely. That'd be good. Another gear change. Yes. Um, <laughs> what are you currently looking at for your solo performance? Basically, coming back from the school holidays, our first lesson of solo, and everyone seemed to have a concept or mm. an idea and I literally I'd thought about particular forms and watching theatre what I liked and what I'd want to incorporate in my own solo but I hadn't thought of anything solid yeah. and I started freaking out a little bit and so I thought look what, what am I what am I what am I passionate about I started thinking about the world uh, passionate about the world and then I started thinking about all the things that are wrong with the world and I thought oh maybe I can touch on one of these topics like the environment or the refugee crisis or yeah so then basically I had all these different directions I was thinking of going in and then I thought actually what do these what do these problems have in common what do all of the the global crises have yeah have in common and i realized it was a lack of compassion so essentially my solo at at this point in time it may change mm. we've got seven weeks oh that's that that's the nature yeah yeah so but at the moment i think it's going to be about the evolution of compassion mm. uh and i did i did a bit of research and I watched a TED talk by someone called Robert Wright hmm. called The Evolution of Compassion and he basically talked about how uh, originally compassion started off biologically as a gene's way of, of helping itself through something called kin selection. kin selection. Kin selection. So basically where if you have an organism and that organism mates with another organism which is compassionate and they obviously have offspring that initial organism's genes are going to be more likely to be passed on if their mate is compassionate because that compassionate mate will put that compassion towards their offspring, therefore ensuring its survival and making sure that the genes get passed down. So it's within the interest of your, your genes to be compassionate uh, for the survival of your offspring. That's just one example. Parental care is just one, one form of c- compassion. Uh, and then it extended into the, the wider community and you're, you're compassionate for, for someone else uh, in your community. But the thing is, is that there were, there were four factors 
which came into play about who you would be compassionate to and who you would extend the rule of do unto others as you would like done to yourself. Yeah. That rule, uh, you would generally only apply it to people who are similar to you, who you're familiar with, if you have a relationship with them. So if you have a, a, a negative relationship, you're going to be less likely to help someone uh, than if, you're, uh, if it's a positive one and how socially close you are. And then we've kind of come to this point now where how do we extend that compassion beyond that? Because say, for instance, Ryan, someone really close to you hurts himself. You're going to feel likely more compassion towards that person than if someone who you didn't know had never met in, in your life on the yeah. other side of the world hurt themselves the same way. You'd be likely to, to get over it quicker than if it was someone that you personally knew. So hmm. how, do we, how do we pass that threshold of being compassionate for, for someone that we don't have any direct contact with? And yet how our decisions might, our decisions essentially to act or not will still affect them, but we don't necessarily feel that compassion towards them. Yeah. So that's at the moment <laughs> what interests me. That's fascinating because that just reminded me, like, what if then someone who, like, celebrity. Yeah. Like, say someone who has, like, an idol, and that idol, well, there's, there's so many famous idols. Yeah. Who, you know, who, 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 who unfortunately, um, you know, committed suicide, self-harm. Yeah, that must be uh, then a fascinating yeah. prospect then to have, like, for example, like, for me, like, I, I really idolise Stephen Fry. Mm-hmm. I think he's great, and I'm proud. I've got a letter from him, oh, which wow. is like my treasured, treasured thing. Yeah. But but it was interesting how I idolised him through watching him through a bit of Ryan Laurie, Blackadder, um, you know, and then on YouTube, and then having this sort of contact with him, just writing a fan letter, and then getting a response from him. So it, so this sort of metaphor, there's this sort of bomb that's being made, mm-hmm. and then yeah, it'd be interesting then if he were to away that that experience would be you know really interesting for someone who you know uh, yeah yeah to have someone so you still don't technically know them on a a personal level but you you know a lot about them and yeah i think the really interesting thing about celebrities and media such as the television and radio is that you you essentially you're getting contact with someone but it's it's one way. Yeah. So you're getting information about them, but they're not getting information about you, which probably means that you have a a closer bond to them than they do to you. So if something happened to them, you're you're probably going to feel it quite deeply. Yeah. But if something happened to you because they don't know you, they probably yeah. might not. No. Yeah, so unfortunately, if anything happens to you, Stephen Fry, I don't think he'll be crying too much, which is, it's sad to think that's yeah. the case. Yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah, it's it's just the, the world in which we live. God, isn't it scary how, and almost at a touch, like, I only have to touch my hand on this table, and I've got a mobile phone where I can access, and I can communicate to so many people yeah. instantly. Yeah. Um, not, not just friends, like physical people I know, but also celebrities again mm. or politicians yeah and yeah. I, I think definitely your your phone and social media certainly comes into play in terms of how we interact with the rest of the world because although talking just then about compassion and finding it difficult to, to relate to someone who's very far removed from yourself at the same time with technology we can cut that distance and make them seem not so far away so I guess the next step would be if we if we can make them close, do we can we be compassionate over can we be virtually compassionate? Can we be compassionate over technology? It's mm. probably the next question. Well, what do you find of the word empathy? Although it's, it's similar. Yeah, I think empathy and compassion. I'm still it's still I have to wrap my head around the difference between the two, and I don't think there is much of a difference. Mm. I think generally you could, they're probably synonymous but empathy, from what I've read, there are two types of empathy Mm. one is cognitive empathy, 
which is basically putting yourself in someone else's shoes, so seeing the world from their perspective. And the other one is affective empathy or also emotional empathy, uh, which is self-explanatory that you, you feel what someone else is feeling. And it's really interesting how these two aren't necessarily coupled together. Mm. So, for instance, you can get a psychopath who has... They have cognitive empathy, so they can put themselves in your shoes, but they don't have necessarily, or they don't use their mm. emotional empathy. I think then that, so so those two types of empathy, I suppose would would lead into compassion because empathy is is turning your perspective to be, yeah, you're turning yourself to be in the perspective of someone else, whether it be their thoughts or their feelings. Mm. And then compassion, I think, is a result of that. It, this is just what I, mm. what I interpret, is that when you, you feel for someone, you then are compassionate. And then I suppose the next step would be how you act after that. Yeah. But I, yeah, I, they are, I think, very similar. And I don't know, maybe my solo I should explore explore that similarity and when yeah. what's what's the what's the line between the two where do you draw the line between what's empathy and what's compassion I don't know <laughs> well thinking because I'm not sure if you watched it but recently so I'm not sure when when this podcast hopefully this podcast will be produced published um, either today or tomorrow morning have you did you watch because this was quite a large sort of viral YouTube clip this week of the BBC, the BBC News, do you know what The I'm, dad, the and dad. then the, the kids come and in, the kids and then the mum's trying to... Yes, yes, I did watch that. Like, when I first watched that, I was thinking to myself, where's his compassion? Yeah. Of the kids, he was so cold. I think, I think he was, there was the accidental crossover from professional to personal. Yes. That I don't think, well, firstly, it was unexpected, and secondly, I think he just wanted to ignore it. I think he just didn't didn't want to deal with it. And then, luckily, his wife—I assume it was his wife—yes, yes, um, yes, yes, yeah, yes. came in um, to to, to uh, grab the kids. But yeah, I did think it was really interesting how he didn't react. No, I don't know if it's obviously ignoring the kids isn't going to make them go away. No, surely it would have been quicker if he had turned around. Picked up the picked child, up, yeah. gone out of the room, put them down, closed the door, gone back, gone back in. Yeah, and talk. And yeah. Be, or it would be even even greater if he just. I think it was. It must have been his daughter. I think it was his daughter. Mm. And then he had a little baby in the. Yeah. In the oh, walker <laughs> that just bounced that's in. That's bouncing yeah. in. <laughs> um, I, I just thought it would have been a wonderful moment if he grabbed his daughter. Yeah, I'm saying daughter. Yeah. Grabbed his daughter and just put her in a lap and then just talk. Because yeah. what I really liked about that you um, that that incident was it then it sparked parodies and there's this wonderful parody of these of this female comedian and Australian I, I think she's Australian is really smart because it was a parody on saying you know what would a woman a woman do and they would grab the child you know take care of the of the of their own child and you know show love and then continue on with the interview you know multitasking yeah. And I think that that is so true. It's like, yeah, definitely. I think he, the the child probably just wanted a bit of attention. I don't think they were gonna wholly derail and distract him from his his talk. So yeah, he could have just picked them up and I don't know. shown them a bit of love. <laughs> That's so interesting. Yeah, that was quite funny. I think it was. Yeah, my favourite part was definitely when the the second child, the little baby <laughs> walker, came, just bouncing. Just but but obviously to go a bit on murky waters because um, as I talk as a white man and oh uh, yes, um, <laughs> what also sparked what that um, report that moment of time what that also sparked was the, the lady who came in it sparked a, a a wonderful debate about you know who was she and naturally when I watched it confessing again I thought she was you know the maid ah you see and the see. Because I'm programmed as as most men of my, you know, yeah, I, I was programmed because okay, this was obviously a British 
But all that, he was American, I believe. I believe this uh, correspondent, not a correspondent, I think he was an expert on, I, I can't remember what they're talking about, was American. And quite foolish of me, I, and I'm not racist or anything, but obviously I'd imagine his wife to be the same ethnicity as him. Therefore, that's why I thought this lady must have been, I don't know, not necessarily a, a nanny. Mm. Um, you know, but that's what I thought because they were not of the same yeah. ethnicity yeah, 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 yeah. heritage. I was watching um, another video, I think yesterday, about whether or not it's racist to have racial preferences in terms of who you're attracted to. Mm. And basically what came out of that was, yes, it is racist because what you're doing is you're, you're generalising a whole race, basically saying if they're, they're good or bad, if they're superior or inferior to... Uh, another race, and from oh, what was I getting at here? I was this was leading into something. It was leading to a point. But that's again, I don't know. Yeah, it's just funny. Felt like I feel like I am a product of my time, yeah. and I feel like I'm hard hardwired watching you know many years of cartoons, and yeah. movies, and television Definitely. series where we see the star of the programs always being white men. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then any other. Most most other characters, if they if they're not white, are the token mm. the token black character or the, the smart Asian, and they're they're not representative. They're not three dimensional, and that's I think that's where we have this this deficit of of seeing diversity on on screen and and in the media, and then that. It comes into our own lives and our own assumptions and how we construct the world around us. A lot of it's, I think, influenced by, by what we view. And if, if we're not seeing that diversity, then, you know, it's, we're, we're going to make assumptions because our brain is hardwired to do as little thinking as possible. And unfortunately, stereotyping is our, our brain's shortcut into making decisions as to how it should respond to a particular situation but obviously as we all know stereotypes are almost most, most of the time aren't accurate no yeah. Mm. yeah most of the time they are dead wrong yeah and see that's the thing um i wish we hadn't like again this would be a sort of little a little preview of next week's yesterday's future past episode of this um of the perthian chronicles where I was, I was talking to zach and i feel like we i think we do need to have more of a community I think we should harken back to the days of... But I wish we went back to those old farming communities. Yeah, thousands and thousands of years ago where we really came together and we're in a society where everyone... You yeah. know, no individualism. You know, not, not really looking after yourself, but, you know... Community. Having communities and looking after... Diverse, diverse communities yeah. and looking after... And looking after one another in that community. Because one of the public speakers I really like and modern philosophers is um, Dr. Cornell West who's this African, uh, is, is an American, um, of African ethnicity and descent, and he's just this wonderful, and he's a, a strong believer of the Christian faith, and he's just this wonderful, wonderful man, and, he, and I love it, like in his, he referenced everyone as brothers and sisters, like he says, our Jewish brothers and sisters, and our, you know, white brothers and sisters, and our, uh, um, um, you know, black brothers and sisters. And I like I like this term, brothers and sisters. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, we're all brothers and sisters. And aren't we all related? Yeah. We're all cousins? In yeah, we're all <laughs> related at some point. So, yeah, I guess. And definitely brothers and sisters implies a family, which implies unity and, and harmony. So if, if you're brothers and sisters with someone... I think, although brothers and sisters fight oh, yes, occasionally, yes. I think I've definitely grown up uh, in a household where I fought with my brother a lot when I was younger. But then at the end of the day, there's still that, that fundamental, unconditional love that you have for them. And although when I was younger and I fought with my brother, there was nothing that would impact the long term. Fights would be resolved and I mean, everyone has conflict. So, yeah, I think that's really important to, to bring up that maybe we should all call each other brothers and sisters so that if we have conflict, uh, we should resolve it. Mm. <laughs> because 
we should love each other. You know, at some point we we are the same. We're all human. Absolutely, we're all definitely human. And we're all, we're <laughs> I mean, all just talking from personal experience, yeah. I'm human, I don't know about... <laughs> well, actually, I'm part um, Android. And oh, right. <laughs> all the secrets <laughs> All the secrets to confessions. When you graduate, and I'm sorry, sorry to... But this is sort of a, a bit of a retrospective because hopefully the aim of this podcast is to meet with all the authors of these chapters meet with him in the year 2027, in mm-hmm. 10 years' time, to have a bit of, listen to this episode, and recap. Yeah. So, I don't know how logistically that is going to be a challenge. Yeah. <laughs> but I shall do my best in achieving this, and it's something for me to do in 10 years' time. Mm. So when you graduate, do you have, I know this is a big question, but is there like this sort of burning topic that you would like to investigate, or an issue, or, I don't know, like a... I'm not sure, do you see you having, do you, would you like to work more in satire mm. or politics in your art? Would you like to see, I don't know what. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I get what you're, what you're asking. I think what I've started to learn recently mm. is that I have many interests and my struggle is actually to find that. My struggle is to find that that one particular specific area that I want to look into, which means that I think between now and when I graduate, there's going to be a lot of soul searching. And I think it's going to be a case of trial and error, making lots of different work and seeing, seeing what really piques my interest. Mm. So hopefully by the time I graduate, I will have an, answer for that and then (laughs) in in 2027 i can tell you what my answer was uh but at the moment at the moment i'm really not sure i think i i just want to do everything (laughs) i I don't want to limit myself because in my in my head if i follow one particular area intensely it means i miss out on all of the rest and then I get FOMO and I think about, oh, what about all these different things? So, but once again, maybe that just means that I haven't found anything that I'm willing to forego the rest of, uh, the rest of everything for, I realise I'm talking very <laughs> generalised oh, terms yeah. here. Uh, yeah, I haven't found something that I'm willing to sacrifice everything else to pursue yeah, you're being in my open. art. Yeah. Yeah, oh. that's, there's nothing wrong in that. Oh, good. <laughs> I feel like making work. Where do you draw? Do you draw inspiration? Like, how, do you just get ideas? Sorry, when you're creating a work, do you just get ideas? Like, so this topic. So, if you didn't have no stimulus, mm-hmm. you're 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 a professional artist. You mm-hmm. have your own practice. How do you work from? Do you work from? I don't know. You're walking in the park and you suddenly have this idea. Wow, you know what's really interesting? The relationship between when someone is feeding a duck at the park. I know something. This is. Yeah. Do you do you draw from like images, the juxtaposition mm-hmm. of images, or? So where do I where do I draw inspiration from if I don't have a stimulus yeah. given to me? I think I draw inspiration from interaction with people. Mm-hmm either in the form of observing or in the form of being in that interaction and how and how a conversation plays out. I realise this is very vague. No, 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 I totally get it though, yeah. <laughs> I think I I'm very interested in the the psychology of how how we as humans behave. Mm. And if I'm if I'm to draw inspiration from anywhere, I think it would it would just be from people again that sense of community i really find it when i was studying at the course i feel like you get immense strength and inspiration and you are at your strongest when you are working with your fellow colleagues and peers mm. and, it, and it even helps if they are nice people not yes. to say that you're isn't they're all wonderful oh, people no, they're all wonderful yeah. um and the year above you no beefs yeah i don't know where i'm going with this <laughs> um no, but I'm just saying, again, coming back to, I think it's important to have like a sense of community. And I think yeah. there is this, there is a, an arts community in Perth. For sure. There is. Yeah. And I think multiple communities within that community of, you know, yeah. artistic practice in Perth. 
We recently did a workshop with someone from Frantic Assembly mm. and at the end of it, we're all sitting in a circle, it was question time and she just mentioned that she thought as a class we worked well together and said, don't lose that yeah. sense of camaraderie. And I hadn't even realised before that point that we all, not necessarily, I mean we all have our differences, but we are willing to put them aside for the sake of making work mm. and it yeah it is really important that you can rely on one another to to do that because it's not always going to be smooth sailing in your personal lives so it's important to be able to let that go for the for the sake of what you're what you're creating do you do you feel like um after after graduating do you have like do you feel like okay I'm going to have a one-way ticket to Sydney or Melbourne. I'm going straight away. Oh. Or are you going to stay in Perth? And obviously, I think everyone will make these uh, a pilgrim, mm-hmm. uh, pilgrimage to Melbourne and Sydney and, yeah. and maybe New Zealand and, you know, what have you. Yeah. Or are you going to, you know, take a, a year, I don't know, some time in Perth and practice? Well, I think currently hmm. my plan is to stay in Perth unless... I receive an opportunity somewhere else prior to moving there. Because my fear would be to to move to somewhere like Sydney or Melbourne and try and get involved in the art scene but but have difficulty doing that and then maybe I've not necessarily wasted but I've taken a particular amount of time out of my life trying to just get a get a foot in the door, but not be able to. So what, if I were to move, I'd want to get the foot in the door before I move. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I feel like at the moment in Perth, I reckon I have, I have a foot in the door. I probably have an ankle in the door. I've got, I've got fully up to the ankle now. And hopefully, yeah, hopefully more of my leg will slowly squeeze through the door. And, and I, I think if I just want to make work, I mean, you don't necessarily have to take the, the easiest path, but for me, the easiest, quickest way would be to stay in Perth mm. and make the work here. It's a, it's a smart... I, I totally agree with you, and that's what I'm... I'd like to... That's what I'm doing right now. Yeah, I think that's totally sensible. Because, yeah, it's, it's risky, but, I mean, at the same time, it's important to make risks, but calculated ones. And at the mm. moment, my calculations say... Do not move unless you know that you're going to get work, which I obviously at the moment nothing has presented itself. But mm. I mean that's two years away, so I can worry about that later. But yeah, at the moment I I probably wouldn't. And I mean I could obviously I, I want to make my own work. So how do you, how does that translate to knowing I will get work if it's my own work? That I think I would answer saying. I'd need to I'd need to know about what I'm making a venue. Am I gonna be in a team? If it's not a solo work, I need people to work with. So are there people in Melbourne or Sydney that are going to want to work with me or am I gonna bring a team from Perth over there? Yeah. So unless all those logistics are, are sorted out, I'd probably stay here. Yeah, it's um also there's a sense there's a part of me and hopefully it is for you to also pioneer in Perth to actually yeah. Say, no, let's make Perth the cap- the arts capital of Australia. No, the world. You know, yeah. Said, there is that certain part of me that you know, it says, why, why can't we make Perth the big smoke? Yeah. It should be. I think it would be easy to also have uh, have the opinion to, to make work in Perth and as soon as you, quote unquote, get big, then to move over to the big cities mm. and, 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 and make work over there. But like you say, we if we need to expand the culture of Perth it's mm. going to be up to it's going to be up to us I, I can't imagine anyone else doing it other than people from Perth aiming to make Perth's art scene greater and bigger and better so yeah. absolutely now time believe it or not has ticked oh no, <laughs> no. oh no. <laughs> no no um just to quickly say mention again um Elise Wilson will be appearing at the solo stage, moments of being a series of solo performances created and devised by the second year BPA students at WAPA. And it's going to be performed at the Enright Studio from May the 10th, 
Wednesday at 7.30 p.m. Hopefully, looking at my mobile phone, <laughs> they should be bookings open the 4th of April to the Friends of WAPA, of the Academy, Friends of the Academy, the 4th of April, and to the public on the 11th of April. Bookings shall be open. Um, go to see it. Now, the signature... <laughs> um, the signature question of the Perthian Chronicles, and yes. I really like this question, but I have to refine it. So, talking about the future, or more specifically, the year 2027, Elise. Yes. What would you like to see yourself plug in the year 2027? Oh, that's... Oh, that's a good one. Okay. Uh, like a know, autobiography or a, a show or a, a film okay so when I was younger hmm. I wrote diaries very sporadically but I, I wrote in some diaries I had journal entries and everything oh, and good. they are hilarious and I've still I've I still kind of every now and then write 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 entries except the they're generally, I go through patches where I'll write an entry every week for about a few months and then I'll take like a year off and then I'm back at it for a few months. And I think it would be really funny to do a verbatim piece on my own words from my own diary because reading back, it's hilarious. That's I think. fascinating. Yeah. And the, the thoughts that I have when I was about nine years old yeah. and the the way in which I would write and how I, I even just how I structured my sentences. One one of the uh one of my entries that I've read has a lot of similes in it and it was because that week at school I'm pretty sure we learnt what a simile was. So every second sentence used the word like or as and I made a lot of preposterous <sighs> similarities. <laughs> so I think I personally would find it very entertaining. To, to look into the the life on paper of Elise Wilson. Life on paper. Well, I can't wait to see it. That'd be see that'd be fascinating on so many levels. Like, oh, the develop. See, I'd be interested in the development. Are there like reoccurring dreads? Yeah. What's what's in my psyche? What am yeah. I thinking? How do, do I develop? Still, do you still harbour any of those um, worries? Yeah. Yeah, well, I guess we'll find out. Twenty twenty seven. Yeah, watch out. Watch out. I'm your chronicler, Ryan Marana. It's a pleasure as always. And today's author for chapter three of the Perthian Chronicles was Elise Wilson. Good morning. Good morning.